I would go and I could hear the bombing happening. I have several sketches where I'm just writing the sound every time I hear it. Despite all of that, we found ways to talk about things other than war. We talked about food, the family members, the books. And then when my parents were able to move out of Kharkiv towards Kiev, it became a little bit easier because there was not as much bombing. And uh, we started to introduce other subjects and uh, there were cats. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. This episode is the second part of my conversation with Nina Khaschina, an artist and illustrator in California. Nina shares her feelings of helplessness, watching from afar as her country was invaded and the bombs were dropped every day on her hometown of Kharkiv in Ukraine. She speaks about the daily video calls that she has with her parents while they were living in Kharkiv and how she has documented each session in her sketchbooks. We talked about books and geopolitics and language and the geopolitics of language. And then we talked about nature and cities and art and the art of nature and of cities. To talk about war, you have to talk about not war. That is the lesson I take and maybe it applies to all difficult subjects in all difficult conversations. Check out Nina's sketchbook pages on her blog or sign up for her Substack newsletter. You can find links to both in the episode description. There you can also find the book list of this episode, a very long list that just suddenly emerged in the middle of our chat and the show notes with links to other tangents from the rest of this conversation. In case you have not heard the first part, I suggest doing that. But just in case, a reminder that Nina and I are drawing each other and taking notes. So if you hear any ambient scratching noises in this recording, like, or, or, that's what that is. To see our final drawings, check out the show notes. I noticed immediately, like, of course, I'd, I'd been following your work from before, but then I noticed this shift in the kind of work that you were sharing as soon as the war in Ukraine began. And with the invasion by Russia, you started staying in touch with your parents over Zoom and doing these portraits and documenting these conversations with them. And not only was this a lovely thing you did, but it is a lovely thing you're doing because you have sustained it as a practice for all these months. And it's become this really beautiful document that I've, I've been going through it the past week, lots and lots of your blog posts. And it's this beautiful document of who they, how they look, how they feel, and the, the sense of these interactions. And I've caught so much of it and I'm very curious to, to parse it with you. So, uh, staying in touch, being disconnected and being a little helpless in another part of the world to affect your parents' lives in any meaningful way. I think this happened to me with COVID 
this is when we a lot of us started using zoom and started using video calling as a way to regularly stay in touch with relatives on other parts of in other parts of the world and i had this sense that i can't do anything all i can do is talk and i can't really if something were to happen i am completely helpless to do anything about it and i will only find out about it with this time zone difference i will only find out about it when i find out about it and then uh, a lot of my a lot of things are not in my power to do and staying in touch was this curious experience because there is this big specter hanging over us which was the pandemic and you are sort of talking we were sort of talking about the pandemic but we were also trying not to talk about the pandemic and we were trying to pretend that it's not there and this is the sort of the resonance this is sort of the feeling that i also got from reading about a lot of your conversations and this is sort of the thing that i want to understand from your experience of chronicling your parents's experience of the war in this manner so take me back to uh, how how this whole situation began do you do you happen to remember the day that uh, the the first conversation you had about it and how that felt um, it's uh, i will probably start by by giving just a little bit of a background for people who might be not familiar with my blog and the whole story um i um uh, come from uh city of kharkiv as we yeah, talked about before um, and uh, uh my family is a family of russian speaking uh ukrainians um my mom is half russian uh my dad is half polish um but um we they both speak ukrainian i do not um i spoke ukrainian and while i lived in ukraine a little bit but it i haven't used it for a long time um another important thing to know is that we always kept in touch with my parents in some ways we we have an extended uh, exchange of letters both on paper and emails and we started doing some video conferencing also before during pandemic and right before but when the war began we knew that things are getting uh, more and more complex and more and more unpredictable for quite some time um but when the war began since uh, february 24th of uh, uh, 2022 uh i was talking to them first several times during the day and then every day uh both by the phone on on just being on the phone and checking and uh, also um doing this video conferences um the i used to draw them even before it's um just a way of uh, uh keeping a conversation for me mm-hmm. sometimes uh when you talk to people especially if uh, uh, a complex subject comes up it it might get hard and my way of dealing with this is through drawing so it was it was my way of approaching these uh, complex moments uh, for quite some times and as you can imagine um the city of Kharkiv was uh, uh bombed on the very first day on February 24th and it continued to be bombed for many 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 months um for about 10 months it was bombed every day uh and uh 
um, being so far away and uh, as you said not being able to help it was a, a very hard uh, uh, thing it would be very hard for anyone who's trying to communicate it's obviously um, things have changed it's important to say that my parents were able we were able to move them first out of Kharkiv in, in the um, end of April beginning of May and then we moved them uh, out of Ukraine when the energy uh, system started to be bombed and uh, there was no power no heating they are um, older people um, who couldn't survive winter in Ukraine without power and electricity. So now they are refugees in Europe. Be, having that, all of that as a background, I want to go back to your uh, sentence about being so far away and not being able to help. The whole uh, experience of, of um, being so much connected to this war uh, is an experience of uh, feeling powerless um, and powerful at the same time. Um, I I haven't lived in Ukraine for many years, yet I have uh, uh, connections to the country, obviously, and uh, to my city. The amount of people who reached out and helped both inside Ukraine and outside and here in, in just in my neighborhood and among my closest friends is um, something that gives me hope for the future and brings my belief in in good to a completely new level. We received help with everything from people who were able to, in the middle of Bomb City, if we couldn't get a phone connected to my parents, people would walk a few blocks to go check on them, people who would bring them medicine, people who would bring them food, these are all people who just stepped up and uh, did their best to help. People around here who knew that I, um, when I, I knew about every bombing and I tried to, to stay awake and kind of check with, on my parents. And we have a larger family, not only my parents, but there is a, there's a big population of family and friends back in Ukraine who were trying to check on all of them after every single bombing who is, who is where, who still has power and, and everything. My my friends are on here, so how how this uh, changed me, how I am reacting to even loud sounds around me and that they tried their best to, to just uh, drive over and give me a hug and uh, come over and sketch with me. Literally, I couldn't get away from my, from my place um, for more than 15, 20 minutes because I was afraid I would miss another bombing. I wouldn't know what happens to my parents. And um, I kind of became hostage of that. But friends would drive over and go sketching with me literally a block away from my place and then bring me back. And, and uh, how many people reached out and tried to help in any way just uh, to give a virtual hug, to, to talk about things, to to see how they can support my uh, my learning, my try, my attempt to bring back my Ukrainian, to see how they can support my attempt to understand the frustration and uh, unbelievable um, feelings of uh, injustice that there is nothing I can do with, but um, um, I want to, and uh, I want to find a way to to be. Uh, proactive 
to be to be someone who is not just succumbing to this grief but trying to do something for the better it's um it's been apart from being a horrible experience of war it's been an experience of um finding new connections including finding new connections with my parents as i mentioned before we we usually we spoke on video um quite regularly once or twice a week but when the war started it became every day sometimes twice a day um a longer conversation not just you okay you survived yes yes no no but but it became a conversation where they would sit down and we would have tea and we would talk and i would draw them and uh, we touch all sorts of subjects um of course while they were in in uh, kharkiv while it was bombed a lot of that uh, dominated everything because we were trying to figure out all the logistics of uh, living in a city in war, um, getting help to to neighbors, dealing with uh, a, a neighbor who passed away and in the middle of the war, the whole system is not what it used to be. And uh, helping people who have animals, helping people who are trying to evacuate, who have uh, little kids and they need basic uh, supplies yeah, I don't know, to change diapers and, and feed them with formula and everything. Um, so that dominated quite a bit our life, especially when I would call and I could hear the bombing happening. I have several sketches where I, I'm, I'm just writing the sound every time I hear it. Um, it's... Uh, Despite all of that, we found ways to talk about things other than war. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about uh, food that we enjoy cooking and how we all cook it differently. Um, we talked about all the family members and, and the books and, and uh, language a lot. We talked a lot about language. Uh, as I mentioned, the family is a Russian-speaking family, but we're all moving quite in interesting ways into uh, using Ukrainian more and more. Uh, and then when, when my parents were able to move uh, um, out of Kharkiv uh, towards Kiev, it, it, was, uh, it became a little bit easier because there was not as much bombing. And uh, we started to introduce other subjects and uh, there were cats. Animals are amazing uh, healers, but humans are above all surprised and uh, brought so much joy into our lives despite the horrible situation and, and horrible humans who are uh, who started this war and who are doing the killing. There's so many wonderful people who um, help each other without without any hope for reward or, or will for reward. Uh, people supported each other so much that it just... Um, I live in a different world in so many senses since the war began, but that is the most important for me difference, the difference that I see so much good around me. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of this one blog post in which you talk about uh, your neighbor, your parents' neighbors going out to look for someone's missing cat mm -hmm. and there was a missing, like I had never heard of this rodent before like a chanchilo. The, um, it's a domesticated rodent. And uh, people were leaving city so fast that some of uh, the pets were left behind. And there was a huge new movement in Ukraine of uh, people who stayed and who made it their 
job to go find those left, the, the pets that were left, and try and save them. I know families who suddenly became people who live with four dogs, six cats, two parrots, a chinchilla, two, and just so that they wouldn't, you know, perish. And uh, but um, <laughs> I understand people who left, but I also it's it's wonderful that there were people who tried very hard to to save as many uh, animals yeah. as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was also really fascinated by, uh, like you just mentioned language also, and this aspect really fascinated me about how your parents are uh, re-educating you in Ukrainian and teaching you new Ukrainian words in every call. Uh, tell me how that works. Like, what uh, do you do? You sp- try to speak only in Ukrainian? Are you uh, is 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 this some kind of concerted effort on your part? And how? What kind of words is he finding for you to learn? Well. Um... I'm trying to be systematic in my approach. Mm-hmm. Language is a, a social thing. Uh, since I moved, um, I Kharkiv is, is mostly Russian. It used to be mostly Russian speaking, uh, and circles mostly people with whom I communicated were uh, speaking Russian to me. Uh, language was one of the very important things that we discussed and talked about when Ukraine was just beginning, when we had this uh, referendum of of becoming independent, um, and I was very much enjoying the fact that the both languages would survive to a large degree because my Russian was always my first language. Um, time helps me gain a different perspective into the uh, relationship between these languages. And I believe that it is very important for, for Ukraine to um, keep and uh, well, the new generations, people who are younger than me in Ukraine, they speak much, much better uh, Ukrainian language. And I think it's important for me as part of my war effort, as part of my effort to uh, make this uh, victory possible is is to keep this language going uh, because it had so much of a hard time surviving next to the Russian language that uh, look at me, I am, my, my passport said, says that I'm Ukrainian, but uh, my Ukrainian was uh, abysmal a year ago. It's a little bit better now. But um, um, So I have a systematic approach. I'm trying to read and listen to podcasts and, and listen to songs. And I try to document my my uh, journey because I know quite a few people who are going through the journey. I'm trying to find people to whom I can speak in Ukrainian. And my parents are one of those people. We try to... Uh, speak in Ukrainian part of our during during our regular conversations. Sometimes I don't have enough vocabulary to keep that going. And sometimes the frustration with not being able to express myself is so much that I, I'm I'm calling it no more. But <laughs> Ukrainian is a beautiful, very, very uh, interesting language which has a connection to many languages to many other languages in the sense that um, uh, the history of Ukraine is connected to many other countries and many other nationalities. I find lots of uh, German and Hebrew words and, and uh, that are part of my language and I didn't even know that the connection comes maybe through some of the Ukrainian roots. We, My parents find interesting sentences for me like uh, proverbs 
and just words that they think I could use in my everyday life so that they can they become active. Part of the problem is my uh, passive vocabulary is is bigger than my active, so I'm trying to reactivate it. And it's easier with everyday things like you know bread and water and and things that you use every day. But when you're trying to get into a little bit more complex conversation, that connection needs to be restored. And that's what I'm. That's what what they're trying to do. They're they're bringing out words. Some of them are completely new for me. Some of them I kind of forgot. And I'm also bringing them words from uh, books that I'm reading. If I can't find, I'm I'm trying to remember how we talked about going immediately to the uh, identification of a plant, or you might take time and try to learn a little bit more about the plant before you go and find what is the name of that tree. So I'm trying to do that with Ukrainian language. If I read a book, and I I kind of I get this I get the feeling that I know what this means. Right. So I try to formulate that, and I try to look through Cesarus's first, and talk to my parents first before I go and look for a direct translation. So that's uh, that's the story of uh, the language and how yeah. we try to keep it going. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Uh, also, uh, because of course Ukraine is in the middle of so many countries and surrounded by so many countries and so many different languages and cultures, languages don't have any borders. Like they are more, uh, they influence each other and they touch each other and they give words and they take words and they give structure and they borrow structure from other languages and then they become their own thing. I was reading this book, um, uh, it's called uh, The it's well, let me let me actually find the precise name for it because it's a really fascinating book at least in the indian context yeah so it's called the horse the wheel and language so this is the book of how central asian raiders came to india and brought horses to india and chariots and so the horse and the wheel and how language is a clue to understand history as well. So I was reading this really fast, another really fascinating book. It's called Early Indians. And it's about uh, the latest discoveries in archaeology and the latest discoveries in genetics and how we are using that to triangulate. So genetics, archaeological evidence and linguistics to triangulate historical movements of people to triangulate who lived where when where they went who they took from what they took from them so whether the language uh, how language is transferred if uh, so there is this sense of language having two two parts to it that there was a language of the men and what they would talk about and the things that they would uh, talk about with their sons who were to be uh, who were to follow their path in career and career is a new word but like what they would do and then there was a language of the women and women often were the people who migrated the most they would be married off to other families other cities other parts of the country or the state or your region and they might go with their regional language and then imbibe that into that world uh, this a similar sort of thing happened with the slave trade a lot of people with different languages were brought together 
input in the same ship sent somewhere are now living around each other and they don't really speak with each other in the same language so now they are having to come to a mixed language which they can all understand borrowing from each other's influences and from the influence of the slave traders and their new quote unquote masters about how to communicate and what they can say uh, completely of course unrelated we're talking about just uh just this it's it's beautiful to me how languages work and i'm happy to hear how uh this these horrific events has invited you to engage again with the ukrainian language and that you are consciously putting yourself through this effort of trying to learn it trying to appreciate it which perhaps you might not have put in the time and the effort in other circumstances tell me about this path of uh, reeducation like what is what are some of the ways you said podcasts what are some of the ways that you're doing it well the a big part of uh, my motivation as i said is is definitely the war um i probably would not have put i definitely would not have put as much um time and effort uh and the big reason is not only war but also a lot of knowledge that um and a lot of thought that came when we faced um um what is happening and uh, what is the who is the uh, this neighboring country and uh, um how the relationship throughout the centuries has changed the uh, ukrainian language existed and uh, for for quite a long time and it was oppressed by um the all sorts of uh, government that was uh, in by russian empire by soviet union by russia but it's it's been under so much um stress from all uh from a historical point you can't just even say that there was a time when it was uh, completely uh free there were brief moments when the language was allowed to blossom into a full um literature and and all sorts of uh, life sides of life but because of because now i am looking at the history and i'm opening my eyes to lots and lots of things that um i was not i did not pay enough attention i did not put in the work to look at these things um i feel that it is important for me especially as for someone who who used to speak russian to look at the things especially for someone who grew up in in the Soviet Union with the whole idea that um idea that was around me that speaking russian is an educated way of speaking and if i want to have a, a good career i have to be speaking russian and everything connected to that and um which is now that i look at it it's i i i'm learning to see the patterns not only between not only within this conflict which is a huge conflict that i believe connects the whole world but also i'm finding connections to completely different parts of my life in the united states because all of a sudden you you when the word touches you you become sensitive to more things and um you see parallels in many different areas um i um um look at the language as one of my ways of learning ukrainian history in particular so i read books um 
the my secret to reading books is that I started with uh, kids books. I have a collection of kids books just because uh, it's it's a tradition in the family to give each other books, and I uh, got a whole bunch of kids books um, from my brothers and uh, from my parents. Uh, so I started with simpler books with the really young kids, and I'm moving into older and older kids. I read short stories, and I reread books that I read in school and uh, I knew before. So there is a certain amount of time that I set aside for reading, because reading is one of my main ways of um, using a language. I listen to podcasts, uh, mostly podcasts uh, about books. Uh, I found that it's um, it's a topic that allows me to not be as emotionally involved. Mm-hmm. It is the I have to be conscientious about how um, I uh, what is my information diet these days yeah. because there is a lot of ways to to um, have very strong emotions that that uh, that have all the right to exist but uh, that might uh, take over one's life so I'm, I'm since the beginning of the war I'm, I'm trying to think through my informational diet and my my uh, reading diet and my uh, watching movie watching diet and uh, podcast listening diet and I limit amount of exposure to things that are uh, connected to wars in general um, and I'm particular as to where I get my information about the war in um, Ukraine um, I uh, sing songs i am a horrible singer <laughs> but um i found that it's um, speaking out uh, language helps very much when when i start talking to people if i haven't um, had a chance to speak and practice certain uh, patterns and pronunciations it's much harder so i i try and sing when i'm alone in the car uh i uh talk to people i write letters um I um, speak face to face mostly through the internet, and I there are quite a few people with whom I completely switched to communicating in Ukrainian. Uh, so we write letters and texts and uh, everything. Um, and between all of that, I hope that uh, I can get much better. Yeah, yeah. I I love so many aspects of this. Like, firstly, uh, I was thinking. That indeed, like the circumstances in which you learn Russian and any kind of regime or culture or country or empire that seeks to establish a monoculture will uh, push, try to push out other languages because language is one of the most important ways in which people maintain diversity of thought and expression. And, and stamping... identity as well. An identity and stamping out language is a very key part of this. And the notion of what it meant to be successful and to reach the heights that you might have as an ambitious person growing up in the Soviet Union meant uh, an overdue emphasis on Russian, in spoken Russian, in reading Russian, in communicating in Russian. And how that changes when your equation with this identity changes, not only with the fall of the Soviet Union, but also like three decades after that, with this war, how you feel about this aspect of your Russian identity, how you feel about this presence of the language in your life and reacting 
to uh, like it's not quite as simple as simply having russian in your life because you learned it and what that makes you feel about the importance of ukrainian language in your life that's uh i was thinking about this because this is such a it's such an interesting thing to go into what is the ukrainian uh text like like what is that based on has that been easier for you than the spoken language um it's hard to say what was easier um i am i i read books um, um it's i'm not starting from scratch i am trying to bring something i haven't used for uh, a quarter of a century not at all um i embraced my uh english english language and english uh, speaking world way uh more than i stayed connected with my ukrainian or even russian speaking um ties um i um it's uh, i think the the choice of listening versus uh reading it's uh, there's no choice i think it's important to have everything a little bit of everything um in order to keep it going somehow it's uh it's again an idea of it doesn't matter how you come into this equation into this world as long as you have kind of a pretty low threshold into doing something regularly one of the um important thoughts in this is um things little things they grow in time you know if you if you do some if you do a little bit every day mm-hmm. it it tends to become a big and and solid and interesting thing if you put enough effort in it every day and it doesn't have to be a huge amount of effort but it has to be pretty consistent so i'm i'm trying to uh keep an emphasis on consistency and on a pretty low threshold that's why kids books because they the subjects are interesting important yet uh maybe the vocabulary is not as complex yeah and also they have pictures which mm-hmm. also helps but and you can you can think about the i have to admit i'm picking up books who that were illustrated by interesting illustrators it's um soft spot i uh keep reading kids books um all my life and it's it's um an interesting pastime for me to open a kids book and see what was it thinking of an illustrator sometimes i even grab a book that i have no idea about that language but i try to dissect what is the story about and mm-hmm. what was it thinking of an illustrator um the uh, ukrainian language has a few letters uh, first of all it has a letter that no other language has in it it's a okay. letter e which is a, a, it became a symbol of ukrainian language it's a very musical language the people who sing in operas compare it to the italian and believe that they are rivals as to which language is more suitable <laughs> for singing operas of course i support uh, that <laughs> sentence but it's a uh, um as someone who sings ukrainian songs in in a car when nobody can hear i believe songs are very very melodical uh it's also a very uh deep language there's so many uh words that describe the same thing of course it's a, it's a, it's a live language um but one of the things that i'm learning is um, sometimes i know the word say for horizon 
But then my parents would bring me another word, and then my brother would tell me another word, and then my parents would discover another word. And we're we're still talking about the horizon. It's not even different horizons. Mm -hmm. It's just a slightly different, whether you looked when it was, uh, I mean, it's a... I think I know what you're talking about because so uh, we grew up in India with an emphasis on English. Now, there is a practical reason for it, but there is also a colonial reason for this. So the education, the formal education system in India was established in at least the way it exists today. It was set up by the British Empire. And so the path to success, the path to uh, your ambition, uh, meeting your ambitions lay in learning English, speaking English, speaking without uh, a strong accent, sounding like an Englishman. So there were there are these virtues associated with simply how good do you speak English? Like that is a great virtue uh, around me when I was growing up in India. And so there was a lot of reading in English and that's how I did 90% of my reading. And I love the written word, but I... For me, my favorite authors were English writers and not Hindi writers. And Hindi was my mother tongue. And I grew up in a part of the country where they speak Bengali. So I learned <laughs> these two other languages, but not to the degree that I would be happy to say now. Uh, of course, I can speak both, but they are a mix of English words thrown in, English nouns thrown into Hindi sentences. And uh, I've been trying to do this thing of relearning it as well of late because I felt that I'm losing so much like English is such a great practical language for communication especially in a multilingual country like India it is the it is essential for us to be able to talk to each other and understand each other it's a neutral language in that sense neither mine nor yours uh, and easy to learn in that respect also Um, but it is a very weak language in some respects like you mentioned Ukrainian is so well suited to the opera and how it's a musical language. And I feel that way about Bengali, for example. I feel like it is such a musical language and it is the most, so in my mind, I have described it previously as it is the best language in the world suited to gossip. If, wow, it's the it's wonderful the, description. It's it's a language for uh, two people to sit and tell each other secrets. That's what the language was made for, I think, in my opinion. While you were speaking about Ukraine and you know how languages take and how they are sometimes oppressed by other languages. I was thinking about this uh, story that I read recently. Uh, it's one of my favorite. He's currently probably my favorite author. His name is Italo Calvino. I don't know oh. if you've read. Yeah. <laughs> so I read his book, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler. And that is a book which is impossible to describe. I'm glad that you know the author. So you have a sense of what I might be talking about. Uh, but... This book is about everything and it's not about anything at all. It's a book which has many books in it, none of which are complete. And still the story is beautifully complete. It's impossible to describe. It's my favorite book of the last six months and I suggest everybody read it. But there is a story inside it. One of the many books inside it is this book written in a language which has now died because that country was subsumed by another country. And... It's written in one language by one author and then the book stops and the protagonist is unable to find the rest of the book. So he goes to the library and in the library they tell him that actually this book is written in, here's the rest of the book and he takes it home and he reads it, but it's not that book. It's some other book completely. And he's told that actually the book is written by 
the other person who whose country took over this country so there is a war between two languages and it's written in their language the original so there is a war in the existence of this book is it written by this in this language by these people who were conquered or is it written in this language by these people who were the conquerors and the stories are different <laughs> but uh there is like i can't i it's just impossible to describe any further so, so you if someone's listening and of course nina i really highly recommend reading this book if you ever want your mind completely blown and you never want to feel like you know what you're reading about please read uh, if on a winter's night a traveler by italo calvino um i would like to um add to your book ideas and uh, suggest uh, if you haven't read maybe it would be interesting for you to read uh, the name of the author is Milorad Pavic it's p a v i and then it's c with a little check mark over it i think it's a, a creation author the dictionary of hazards is the book that i wanted to mention it's it has three parts it's supposed to be written in three languages and it hazards a obviously the the nation that we know very little about but it's uh, historically it existed and it played a huge role in the whole uh, history of europe but we know very little about them because we have very little written records this is a, a contemporary book which is trying to tell the same story from three different perspectives uh, from the, the, there's a part that's written by jews there is a part that's written by muslims so it's an interesting book and it's a lot about languages and it's a lot about cultures and um i am looking for recommendations because this year has been a really good year of reading for me already i have read several authors that i had never read before and uh-huh. i have just loved all of it i this is the year that i read it's very uh, odd as a voracious reader but this is the year that i read my first salman rushdie novel and i was completely blown away it's the new novel by him it's called victory city and it mm-hmm. is set in uh, the empire of vijayanagar which is an empire in the south of india which was the richest empire in the world in the 1400s and then it was completely decimated and destroyed in the early 1500s and just the ruins remain of that great city of vijayanagar in this place called hampi in india and only the bare ruins of that incredible city and the incredible empire now exist and this is a novel of historical magical realism it's absolutely crazy and this is what he does but this is my first time that i read him and i was just blown away by the book now i'm reading another book by him called the enchantress of florence mm-hmm. which is just delightful i love indian mughal history and this is a book about not only the mughals but also um uh, italian city states so it's set partly in india in the time of akbar the emperor akbar the great and partly it is set in the florence and venice and partly it is set in turkey at the same time which is like i think the middle 1500s and it's just absolutely fascinating interesting what is your reading you're obviously a voracious reader what is your reading system do you how do you pick books how much time do you spend how do you um i'm curious about many things um i love novels i love short stories i grew up reading everything that i could grab my hands on and in india we didn't read a lot of american authors 
so i grew up reading a lot of british authors i one of my favorite authors growing up was roald dahl mm-hmm. who wrote charlie and the chocolate factory and all these other amazing stories for children but also amazing adult short stories as i found out later so he was one of my favorite authors and now uh, i use reading as a way not only to read fiction and uh, magical realism and stuff like that uh, science fiction and fantasy fiction but also as a way to uh, educate myself so i read a lot of non fiction and non fiction that i read is about history and indian history and world history i read a lot about philosophy um all kinds of like i i think i'm very curious to now read more and more diverse things that i didn't read before the one thing i'm clear about not reading is that i don't like to read self help books i don't write to, i don't like to read any book that tells me it's going to make me a better person as soon as a book is about how to improve something how to do this better that's not a author i'm interested in that's not a book i'm interested in so do you keep notes I'll, i keep notes yes in fact just last week i posted about this on my newsletter i was asking people if they do this thing do they write in the margins of their books because this is something that i grew up feeling very scared about that you can't do this it's it's uh it's illegal to write inside a book to make any mark but a lot of people i find do this and they take a lot from this experience like just like i do from note taking like a way to reinforce good sentences good ideas so have I a think, deeper experience mm-hmm. i think i'm going to do that now so i'll tell you uh, i just got this new book that i've been uh, meaning to get into one second and i've started to take notes on it uh, so it's by this philosopher called walter benjamin mm-hmm. and the book is called uh, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction so he wrote this mm-hmm. in 1930s when a large scale uh, printmaking became a thing and he was uh, it's a it's not a novel or anything but it's just a bunch of ideas about culture and about art and he's speaking at the time when what happens when the art that you see was not made is not the original art so it's a print of the art and once this becomes prolific and as it is prolific in our age we're looking at screens etc etc we're not actually looking at each other sketchbooks we're not actually looking at things on the wall in what way are you divorced from the from an experience if you are looking at a reproduction rather than the original and what is is there a difference between the reproduction and a, you know the original and a perfect reproduction is there a difference possible and what is that difference so it's a meditation on this idea of the aura of art and the aura of the original and uh, in a future with inevitable mechanical reproduction as he was looking at what does it mean to engage with art and this is sort of what this whole thing is going to be about i'm just starting to get into it I love that you're reading such an old book about something that sometimes feels like a very very contemporary maybe even today's subject because we just now are facing it but the truth is we've been facing this for quite a long time I don't know if you've uh, heard you probably heard about Ursula Franklin is is an author who has very interesting books about technology um and it's also it it's not at all written yesterday but um it's very interesting how 
thinking through those things was something that um, occupied people way before we think we became familiar with the problem. Absolutely, yeah. Like, uh, so one of the big problems. So I started just reading about philosophers, not actually reading philosophy textbooks or the works written by them because those are very difficult to read. Um, so I started listening to podcasts about philosophy and reading. I read this really beautiful book a couple of years ago. It's called At the Existentialist Cafe. And mm -hmm. it is about the this. It is set in this cafe in Paris where modern existentialism was born during World War II. So under the uh, impending Nazi occupation, Mm -hmm. These French thinkers they, and writers, they got together and they coined and they formalized what would be known as existentialism. And reading about, like, you know, reading fiction, I think, is the first clue you get that usually life does not change very much. If you go back 100 years, often the problems are the same. People's uh, issues are the same. Their conflicts are the same. It's just the setting has changed and now there is technology and there is this and that, but we are still grappling with the same kinds of old problems about about life. And so some of the answers that people sought are also in thinkers who were alive hundreds and thousands of years ago. Like Stoicism is so popular right now. It seems like every other nonfiction book is about Stoicism and the Stoic attitude and this was, they are quoting Marcus Aurelius, who wrote 2,000 years ago. And we are taking our lessons from somebody so distant and disconnected from our modern our world. world. And the same way with all of these guys. Like, So I am grappling with this question because... Uh, so I read this essay called The End of Art. It's by this art critic called Arthur Danto. And what he was talking about was uh, he referred to two times that art ended and he's talking about it in a good way so the first time it happened is when photography was invented mm -hmm. suddenly the narrative of art had to change like the original idea that art would be about showing the world and preserving a memory of the world or a person was gone suddenly photographers could do that so art had to find a new profession had to find a new story that to be part of and this is the time when Impressionism and Cubism, Surrealism became a thing. So the second time when art ended was with Andy Warhol in his essay, he says. So when Andy Warhol suddenly put these uh, Brillo boxes and he put them up as an art piece, a collection of Brillo boxes, there was no more any distinction between the Brillo box that was art and an actual Brillo box the Campbell soup that he put physically somewhere versus an actual Campbell soup tin that you bought at the grocery market. So now, what is the real thing? What is the ordinary thing? And what is the art? That distinction is gone. And another story of art ended right there. So I was reading about this and that got me a little interested in the artists grappling with technology and grappling with how, with a changing world and a changing definition of art. Just like we are grappling now with generative art and nfts and ai art and things like this we suddenly have to also rethink who we are where do we belong what do we do and what is the purpose what is the value of doing it another way and uh, so i started reading this book called the shock of the new by robert hughes 
and he talks about the last 100 years of art and basically these uh movements of surrealism and impressionism and uh, cubism and the shock of this new form of art and expression and what it means that uh what how in what way did art change completely so i i enjoy i enjoy reading stories and i find these are also just stories at the end of the day and uh, it's very nice to understand how art works because i am trying to be an artist and i'm trying to create value for my work which is just in my head until i put it on paper and then it's on paper but that doesn't mean it has value i have to create value for it and i'm very ambitious with it so i have to have a very clear idea and even if i don't have a clear plan i have to have clear idea of things to do with it that will create the value for it so this is sort of me arming myself with best ideas from uh the last 200 years sometimes it's nietzsche sometimes it's dostoevsky sometimes it's andy warhol and uh, picasso and all these different people who thought in a way which was not thought of at the time and who then made it real made it something substantial existentialists like sartre and simone de beauvoir all of these people sort of helped me come up with ideas wonderful i'm good you you're reading a lot <laughs> yeah. i took lots of notes let's let's come back to what we were talking about uh, there are just like we were talking about the war and now we are talking about not war what i found really fascinating from your uh, video calls with your parents was also this that so many times like you would hear the bombs you would hear the explosions and that is shocking you back into the this awful moment and this awful reality but in order to keep having these conversations we have to sometimes delude ourselves we have to distract ourselves from whatever you can call this reality even the other thing is a reality the reality being the neighbor's cat is lost or the reality being that i found a new plant that i'm not able to identify the extended family and how how it is doing these conversations which in which both of you both parties want something important and something deep they want to feel reassured but the path to doing that is also through a lot of mundane ordinary things of life um i think there there're different ways to answer this and the simple one is um i i try to think about life as as um, a whole bunch of uh, little moments that we kind of Uh, experience one after another and um it helps with uh with grand ideas and uh, with eager and with uh, all sorts of um all sorts of things horrible things that are happening things that are inevitable that are happening and uh um the, the time is passing and uh, we're all changing how our relationship with uh, the truth with our memory changes um i feel like concentrating on the moment that we're facing right now helps me um unite all of those feelings into something that makes sense and that's how i i try to have these conversations with uh um my parents there's a there's a book um Uh, by uh, a San Francisco artist Paul Madonna 
And uh, the book, I bought the book because I liked the, this is very rare occurrence when I haven't even looked inside. I, I like the name of the book. And the, the book is called Everything is Its Own Reward. So everything is its own reward. So if you if you think about that in that sentence, what I'm trying to do is is look at the time that I have with my parents, whether we're talking about uh, hard things or complex things, or very simple things like what they're going to cook or I'm going to cook or anything, language, whatever we touch, I'm trying to find the reward in in that in that connection, in that conversation, in that communication. And that's how that's how we go from one little thing into another. Because, you know, the we all will be, you know, the sun is going to blow up in <laughs> hopefully a lot of years. But still if you if you think about that uh, perspective, we're we're tiny specks who live a fraction of a second on a little ball with a little bit of water over it. Um Remembering about those things is, is very important to survive the fact that uh, sometimes our ego is bruised and sometimes we really want um, some things and they're not happening. And uh, horrible things are happening and, and happy things are happening and they all will continue happening when we're all gone. Yeah, yeah. That's... Like I, I remember, uh, well... Uh, I I wrote about this that until before COVID I was immortal. Now I'm not <laughs> immortal. Like COVID has uh, removed that uh, illusion from my mind, and I had to confront the fact of mortality. So many occasions, like when say in the early pandemic, when you didn't have any idea about how severe things are and what is the likelihood of catching an infection. Whenever you would find out that someone in your circle is positive, what you would feel for them, what you would, the fear you would feel for yourself, not knowing things, not having any idea when a vaccine might come out and uh, grappling with this fact that anything can happen to you at any time. And like you mentioned, the, the sun can explode and will in millions of billions of years and then everything will be gone anyway. And in my experience, I went out in the park, I looked at a tree and I had this cathartic moment when I thought this tree is going to be around. Like even if, you know, things go away, there are these little beautiful things that you can look at and just looking at it. And if I can just appreciate it right now, that is also a good reward. That is also good enough. Like That's good in... enough. Definitely. It's very interesting to see how artists uh, in Ukraine live through the war. And when I say artist, it's not necessarily visual artist. People who, um, anyone actually, who lives through this war, the way how um, after the initial and, and very hard moment of just bare survival uh, passed, how people try and find ways to make their life better, make their life a little bit more, bring a little bit more beauty into it. I see lots of uh, people who um, are posting pictures of, of spring that is coming right now in, in Ukraine. I have friends who are sending me pictures of flowers, even though there are lots and lots of places where people cannot go right now because, um, unfortunately, a uh, horrible reality of the war is that as the uh, um, Russian army is moving out, it's putting lots of landmines and, and people shouldn't be going into uh, 
uh, woods and 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 uh, next rivers. So all the places that used to be places for people to go in spring and enjoy are right now off limits. Um, but people are finding a little bit of spring even in the middle of a, of a busy city. People are trying to to make music. There are lots of amazing murals that are coming up in the city. The way how people fix buildings that are in a that that were destroyed by by shelling by bombing. As soon as they are able, they're trying to fix it and make it a little bit prettier. You know, not just to put a, a piece of wood in the in the window that that was broken, but they're painting over that window. They're making pictures, they're making there's several buildings in Kiev, for example, that were restored after the shelling and in a prettier way than they were before. That's um it's another thing that brings me um lots of belief that we will win. Yeah. Ah, all right. Let's move towards urban sketching, I think is a nice subject to go to. Um, so you have been drawing since early childhood. You have been drawing from observation. You have been drawing from the from your curiosity and turning that into something on the page. You've been drawing from nature. You've been looking at found objects like seeds and cones and flowers and leaves. And you have interacted with them in various ways. You have put them into your sketchbook in various ways. You have thought about them in various ways. Um, the urban sketching movement is something like that, but it seems to lean towards the built human environment. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you discovered it. Were you also simultaneously curious, just as you are about the natural world? Were you also similarly curious about the built world, which we'd make as urban sketchers? Um. It was a gradual process, I think, for me, as with everything. Um, the, when the whole sketching, when sketching became part of my life and the whole world of sketching uh, was growing online, there was a whole bunch of people on Flickr that were connecting to each other. And some of those people were naturally drawing more uh, uh, natural world and some were drawing more buildings and uh, um, urban environments. And... Um, as I enjoy switching my materials and my subjects and, and, and styles, I enjoyed switching subjects uh, uh, and, and drawing urban environments as well. I'm interested in, in a relationship in, in a drawing. It's um, for urban scenes, it's always interesting for me to, to have several subjects and see how they interact with each other. Uh, I uh, lived in, in a big city of New York and it has a completely different dynamic as, um, say, city of Kharkiv or, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Mountain View in, in, in the Bay Area. Those are very different um, cities with different, uh, not only architecture, but also the way how uh, buildings communicate with each other, how they change each other. Um, there's a very cool book, um, I don't remember the author, but the book is called "How Buildings Learn," and it and it's a, it's an older book, but it talks a lot about how buildings affect each other, how they are, um, how in both insides and the outsides of the buildings change with time, and how people and their environments and their interests are bringing that change. 
So it's mm-hmm. it's very interesting for me to to go and draw a backside of the building and see how old pipes are uh, under the new pipes. I enjoy drawing the um, power poles in the United States. It's amazing how many wires you might have on the white one power pole. It's that, you know, the, the whole electrical shenanigans that are happening around just that little part. And then you see a, a building next to it. And uh, so the relationship with, between all of these things are, are part of urban sketching that really fascinates me. And I try and uh, uh, catch an opportunity to to draw some of that as, as often as possible. I like drawing people in the environments, although it's a little bit um, uh, complex juxtaposition because I enjoy drawing moving people more than I enjoy static people, mm-hmm. although it's easier to draw someone who is just sitting and reading than someone who is dancing. But uh, the joy for me is more in, in drawing someone who is dancing. But it's rare thing to to catch that in an urban environment um i also think that for me urban sketching uh, as a community brought a lot of uh, connection to people brought a lot of friends connection to people comes up in in all our uh, subjects today and the uh, urban sketchers community is is uh, um, a good place to to find interesting people supportive yeah. and uh, uh, with such a wide range of interests in um, what to draw, how to draw. Yeah, I agree. Like I attribute so much of my learning curve as an artist to looking at what urban sketchers do and looking over someone's shoulder in Chicago or Minneapolis. These were the two chapters that I was most regular with in different times. And I would just watch how they negotiated a certain problem. And then I would think, okay, I can do this and I can do this. And maybe this is how I will approach mine. Uh, Taking ideas for composition, for color, for uh, how to go fast. Like this idea of what can I focus, uh, the idea that I can focus on something and ignore other things. I also took that freedom from watching an urban sketcher do it. That if you don't want to draw the car, just pretend it's not there. And that, that was fun. That was like a bit of liberation for me. And it invited me to, you know, like you said, the people have different motivations and different curiosities. Not only do they express in different ways, but they also express different things in different ways. And that gives you license to also express yourself in whatever way you want. Also, your observation about buildings is very interesting because uh, I've noted that name of that book down, How Buildings Learn, because this is a subject that I think about how a purpose of a building, the purpose of any interior space is, at least in the city, is to serve the people who will use it. And those needs change over time. And then those buildings repurpose themselves over time. So one of the examples for me is the library. Because generally libraries were the only place where you could read a certain book if you couldn't buy it. And the only place that would have so many books that are otherwise unavailable anywhere else And that's the only place you can get that knowledge. But now that thing is lost. You can get pretty much every book online. You can get ideas outside of those books, taken from those books and presented to you in a million different ways. YouTube channels, TikTok channels, etc, etc, etc. But libraries have reinvented themselves. And they still uh, offer this crucial public function. The need for a public space, the need for Wi-Fi, the need for certain resources if you are without those resources. And 
this this is the sort of thing that makes me excited about drawing cities seeing how people engage with their world whether it's a park so it's a natural world sort of a natural world created by us or whether it's literally the built environment the street the train station the buildings the cafes and how we intersect and how we use those and urban sketching has sort of let me do that i feel yeah it's a it's a very interesting way into um drawing to to start with the urban sketching there are many as as i said there are many ways to enter but it's one of the i think it's it's also the existence of so many people who are regularly going sketching that system that you're not alone for some people it's a, it's a very good starting point to have a, a little bit of a community even if they maybe they wouldn't do that too often but um um it's a, it's a, it's an interesting uh it's an organization that is growing and it's it had an interesting past and it had a very interesting past and i hope it will be an will have an interesting future mm-hmm. yeah yeah that that's true um now uh nina you've been blogging regularly also like you're not just making your art it's not just in your sketchbook what is your motivation behind this um as i mentioned before i keep in touch with quite a few people in my life and uh, i am used to writing regular snail mail paper letters and and greeting cards and and such and then more emails and then now text and everything but the truth is there are quite a few people who um with whom i cannot stay in touch as much as i want but it's my way the way how i look at the blogging is my way of letting people who want to know what the heck am i up to <laughs> this is their way of uh okay i can go and check what what is she doing these days maybe they haven't heard about me uh, for quite a long time maybe we keep in touch and we exchange regular letters uh, this is kind of something that can go on no matter where we are in our personal relationship when the war began for example the number of people that reached out and um connected people from whom i haven't heard in many many years was it was astonishing and uh, so many people who never knew me but apparently knew my art reached out and uh, i just had this new sense uh, new feeling of how many people actually know about some of the shenanigans that i was up to and i wrote mm-hmm. in my blog or they they learned how to fix that pan on in in or learned about some gouache stuff that i paint, painted and and posted about i just had this feeling that there's so many people who are actually reading it that um i'm going to continue that i think it's worth it that connection with people yeah yeah i i agree i i've been writing uh, every week around my art for the last almost 3 years now and it's been so rewarding and i've really enjoyed that instagram is not the only way that i speak to an audience it's so difficult to really connect with instagram and nobody is in the mood to stop everybody's scrolling and i feel like i have to try to grab their attention and this has given me like a way to just do my part and when they have time they give me a little bit of time and they do their part and everybody is more wholesome and everything is more consensual and mm-hmm. nothing is about 
being flashy and just jumping out at you and asking you to not not scroll just stop and watch this and listen to this music <laughs> it's an alternative um going back to the the Ursula Franking book frankly you you will find lots of thoughts on on the technology and how that uh, a need for slower experience is um actually um an important part it's it's definitely an important part for me in my relationship with uh, blogs with the part of my um reading that i'm doing online mm-hmm. um and um, um it's uh it's part of why I blog myself because it allows me to stop for a moment, maybe spend a little bit more time and uh, have a look behind me and see some patterns and maybe formulate them, even if it's for myself. But I'm also, it, it tells um, the people who care a little bit about what I'm up to, uh, where I'm going and what I'm thinking about and what, what kind of colors I'm enjoying lately and uh... yeah yeah and it's it's a good idea to it's a good idea to put that thing in words to someone other than yourself like there's a certain way that I would write I write in my journal to myself but if I know that I'm writing to someone else there is it's like the difference between knowing something and then teaching something it's it's a good point yeah learning teaching teaching yourself and uh uh, by teaching others, you're teaching yourself, and the blogging is uh, a good example of that. Yeah. 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 All right. So I have a last question, but I think I've saved a good one for the end, which is that <laughs> I saw a picture of you scuba diving in a scuba uh-huh. suit while sketching. Please tell me what that's about. How does this work? Um, I am. A, I'm a scuba diver. Um, I started scuba diving in. Uh, uh, Pacific Ocean. It's pretty cold. I was not drawing when I was scuba diving uh, here. Um, but uh, because here I was mostly scuba diving in, in a dry suit with uh, more equipment and it's, it's harder. But when I uh, started uh, scuba diving in warmer waters, I really wanted to draw everything that I saw underwater. Um, so I slowly started bringing with me all sorts of materials. And uh, I kind of found the system that works for me. I always scuba dive uh, with uh, a partner and uh, uh, we team up and uh, just uh, to make sure that I don't forget about the time while I'm sketching. Um, I am uh, using uh, water which is partially plastic or completely plastic. I have uh, um, found this water from Right in the Rain Company. I actually learned about them when I went uh, to Alaska on a residency about ten years ago. So it was a, it was a very interesting experience. But I knew that there would be a lot of rain, and I reached out to the Right in the Rain, asking which paper would be um, a best solution for me to take in case if I would be needing some sketching. We were kayaking through. Um, part of the uh, Barana Island it was uh, it's it's a topic for a separate uh, story but uh, point being the I got a, a whole bunch of sample papers from them um, and uh, I've been using that mostly that paper to take with me when I scuba dive um, I draw up landscapes 
I draw fish and all sorts of other animals that I see underwater. I also enjoy drawing people. It's a little bit of nature journaling because I, I try to write down whatever I see and then I identify that uh, uh, fish or, uh, you know, coral or something, a nudibranch, I later identify it when I'm back on the surface. Uh, I try to make notes about colors. Colors change quite a bit when you're underwater. Mm -hmm. And the deeper you go, the more they change. I know that you're a scuba diver as well. So you, you know these well, things. I wouldn't have, I can't say diver. I've done it three or four times, but I <laughs> don't think I get to say I'm a scuba diver. It's like last time was before the pandemic. Unfortunately, pandemic put a bit of a, a stopper on, on mm -hmm. scuba diving for all of us. But uh, hopefully now, Soon the life will get back to normal yeah. and you'll have a chance. Yeah. If you go scuba diving underwater, please remember that uh, pencils are much more buoyant than anything else. So if you let go of your pencil, <laughs> it will be up on the surface. And please don't chase it. I wanted to ask what art supplies you would use. Like you mentioned the paper, but what else do you, how do you draw on it? I have a, a little plastic board and I have a paper that I uh, put on it. Uh, it's a um, spiral bound uh, sketchbook, bunch of, of papers. And I have a rubber band which keeps the other side of the paper attached to them to my board. Because uh, underwater there is quite, even in a quiet and situation of warm water, there, is, there might be some current, there might be some, there might be a, someone just kicked uh, uh, their things next to you mm -hmm. so there was uh, the the paper might be uh, flopping so I, I keep it attached I tried the uh, clips but um, you need several in order to keep the whole paper um, attached to your board the surface on which you're drawing becomes very different from how you see it when you're above water it I becomes see. much heavier and it becomes um, a little bit different to the touch I tried all kinds of papers. The deeper you go, the more pressure your body and your pencil are under. So even if you take 6B pencil, it would be drawing as a just B pencil, maybe, when you're at, at 50 or 60 feet depth. So take as, as um, soft pencil as you can if you enjoy soft lines and you remember that the normal B pencil will be hardly drawing at all. Um, I enjoy taking color pencils a lot. Uh, I uh, created this little wristband with lots of uh, um, spaces for me to put uh, all kinds of pencils as a little uh, bracelet of mm -hmm. uh, uh, pencils. <laughs> um, and I, I use one and then I put it back. As I mentioned before, if you let go of your pencil, it's going to be on the surface immediately. Yeah. So I, I use one color and then I put it back. and. Um, um, I wash all my sketches when I came up, uh, when I come up on, on the surface, when I, when I came up first and I didn't wash it, um, my, my paper, it, it became encrusted in salt. And, uh, that's how I learned that I need to wash all my sketches. And, uh, I, uh, enjoy doing that and I recommend it to everyone who is ready to go scuba diving with a pencil. Yeah, yeah, that's like uh, I I re remember feeling this way. Uh, like once I got a little comfortable with doing it, and the last time was in Puerto Rico, and we it was so nice and warm, and I was seeing these incredible things, and I was thinking that I cannot document any of this. Like 
I don't want to take a photo, but I that is I literally thought there's no way for me to draw or paint or sketch this, and I just have to see it, and that's special when you can't record it. Uh, that's also really cool, but I'm amazed to learn that there is a way to do this, and I think I really there want is to. a way. There is a way. I I know about experiments that several people did with with that. Um, Rita Sabger was uh, uh, snorkeling with with some uh, sketching equipment recently. Uh, another person who was doing that, Tom, he's uh, he's also from Canada. I think he was on your podcast. I'm not sure. Oh, uh, uh, Captain Tom. Yes, Captain Tom. Yeah. Um, so he was. He also, I think, had some experience with snorkeling. With with um, there is an artist. Um, what's his name? Uh, Foster. Tony Foster, I think is his name um he is the watercolor artist but he tried taking i think acrylic paint he tried to make a painting underwater he had a special team of people who were helping him with materials mm -hmm. and i don't think he did many um attempts at, at that but um that's another person i know who is who's doing quite a bit of that i uh since i started i i was drawing at every uh, dive that i took um i also keep my dive log so I, I write some text when I uh, go back up but when I'm underwater I'm trying to be as as um, focused as possible on drawing what I see in front of me and and um, keep any notes any ideas and write them down and um, then rework them later when I when I'm back on surface and I can use my reference books and ask mm -hmm. people about things yeah <laughs> Yeah, this sounds this sounds so lovely. I think, yeah, I I would really like to do this. I think the Pacific coast is going to be too cold, like you said. But I I should really find a way to take Warm. this opportunity somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I have one more question. Um, so you're a, you're a professionally you're working as an illustrator. You're doing a lot of art. Um, how do these identities work for you? Do you have ambitions that are purely as an artist that have nothing to do with your professional illustration job? I'm trying to think about that um, whole perspective thing and just take things one, one day at a time. I'm, I enjoy moving all the pieces on my board. I'm trying to make art, but I'm trying to make illustration illustrations. I'm moving my graphic design business. I'm I wouldn't say that uh, um, it's such a big part of me moving forward to have a, a big ambition hanging in front of me. I find it that for me, it works much better if I separate my doing the work from thinking about the work and uh, I just do the work, do the work, mm -hmm. and then I think a little bit, and then I go back to doing the, the making the art, making the paintings, participating in shows, finding new clients as, as an illustrator or as a graphic designer. This all can coexist in my world somehow without putting a one big goal of uh, winning a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Though there is no Nobel Prize for art, but Unfortunately, if there was one. If there was one. <laughs> Well, that sounds very different from my approach. I think a lot and I think a lot and then I think a lot. And then only when I'm drawing does my brain stop thinking. Mm -hmm. And then I stop drawing and then I resume thinking a lot and thinking a lot. And that's just 
how I am surviving so far, overthinking everything too many times. Overthinking is is dangerous uh, for me. I yeah. I stop making art, and when I stop making art, I'm I'm not a happy person. So mm -hmm. I'd rather make art. That's yeah. my I, way I, to happiness. I feel like I need to draw more in a day. Like my capacity to draw in a single day is not that many hours. Like I think dedicated artists draw for several hours in a day and I feel like I do very little like I do maybe one maybe one and a half and not more um, I think everyone is different and uh, one of the things that, that parenting taught me and also caring for, for people in general taught me is that using little chunks of time little things get really big over time mm -hmm. so having Drawing at every opportunity, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, it ends up uh, with a lot of time. I, I'm interested in tracking my time and I've, I've done some experiments where for a couple of years I tracked like all my time up to five minute increments. So I, I spent a lot of time learning from the, we, we tend to think about uh, time in, in different perspectives i think if you would if you would try and see whether you can insert little little tiny increments of art in in your day it might end up being way more than you think is an hour or maybe even if you track it i never knew how long it takes me to consume food for example until i started tracking my time i never knew how much i draw until i started tracking my time but then i found out that something that I thought is very little accumulates throughout the week into quite a few hours. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you'll, if you'll track and see, maybe you're drawing way more than an hour or two hours in a day. I'm definitely thinking about it for much longer, but <laughs> I, I, I think, I I, I think I'll, I'll benefit from tracking. I think that's a good idea. All right. Wow. Thank you so much, Nina. This was such a such an amazing conversation. I learned so many things. I got to talk about so many things. We talked about books and music and geopolitics and language, aside from talking about nature and art. Wonderful. I'm glad. Yeah. I had a fun and it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience sharing so much uh, with someone I met for the first time. I know. Online. <laughs> That's the most interesting and bizarre experience of this podcast to have a first conversation with someone and convince them to tell me everything about their life and their deepest motivations. Okay, so before we leave, uh, do you want to hold up the sketchbook? Thank you for listening. And a special thank you to the wonderful people who recently signed up to become Sneaky Art Insiders. Your support makes this show possible. To share your thoughts, to see the full book list, to add another book to it, to take the summer discount and become a sneaky art insider, or to join the conversation around this episode on my Substack page. Find all the links in the episode description. I would love to hear from you. See you in the next one.